Welcome to New Philly. If you're new to our community, we're so glad that you join us. During the summer, we normally have a lot of visitors coming through, and it's always our pleasure and it's our joy to be able to open up our doors and invite you into this community, however short or however long you guys are here. So thank you for choosing to worship with us today. We hope that you leave this place not thinking, man, what an amazing church New Philly is. I hope you leave this place thinking what an amazing God we serve, we worship, that you leave here not with the name of New Philly or Pastor JP or whoever but the name of jesus and that's what you leave with today yeah please don't leave with the name of pastor jp in your head (laughs) um yeah Uh, sorry and i sound a bit like the godfather right now i kind of lost my voice uh please bear with me and tech team please help me out um yeah so i have a message for today and um kind of to to get us into it i would like a show of hands For anybody here who has experienced the perfect Christian walk, like, like you accept Jesus and then it's like roses and rainbows here on out, like no pain, like no, no struggles, no temptation. Like you're always walking a bed of roses and the birds are chirping and I don't know, I don't know what goes on, but isn't it true that something that we all have in common is that on this side of eternity, what we get to experience, as good as it is, it's always going to be riddled also with struggles as well on this side of eternity. And something that we all have in common until the day that we meet the Lord is that our walk here on earth is going to have ups and downs. It's going to have its mountaintops and its valleys. And that's something I wish I could promise you once you accept Jesus into your life, man, everything's good. Like you are set to go and you're just going to glide on until you see Jesus in eternity. But that's just not the way it works out. That would be a great sell. I think who wouldn't want Jesus, right? Who wouldn't want to accept Jesus if that was what I was selling right now? That's the fact of the matter is it's that it isn't even sometimes it actually life can become even harder after you accept Jesus. And what do you do with that? How do you? How do you sell Jesus then? You know, you're selling something to someone that might worsen their lives in some way. So hopefully today we'll bring a little bit of, uh, you know, a little bit of clarity regarding that. So these trials and these tribulations and these challenges that we have in this life, the Bible actually has a word for it. The word is wilderness. It pops up all over the Bible in the Old Testament and in the New Testament all over the place, there's always this word that pops up when you least expect it. And it's unfortunate because if that word wasn't there, I think we would end up with a really ideal Christian life. Like, man, life would be perfect, like Disneyland, he, like uh, on earth as it is in heaven, you know, that's what life would be like. But the word of God says that that's not how it is, at least not on this side of eternity. Growing up and reading the word of God, um, I always had this idea of wilderness as like the jungle. Did anybody think that before? Right? Because you think wild, right? Maybe. I don't know. I'm from South America. Maybe that's why. We don't have a whole lot of a desert. South American jungle. I don't know. Like the wilderness out there is like where their monkeys are and the, you know, Tarzan is somewhere out there. But anyway, so my idea of wilderness was always like this untamed lush, you know, like we hear like birds in the distance and like there's so much life there. That was my idea of what wilderness meant until I actually started reading the rest of the Bible. And I realized like, oh no, we're talking about the wilderness in the Middle East. That's a whole different deal. 
Wilderness of, okay, okay, didn't occur to me. Yes, it's not the same as, uh, you know, South America. But when we talk about wilderness in the Middle East, it's not a word for untamed kind of lush nature, kind of growing out of proportion, but it is a word that describes a barren landscape, like no food, no water, no vegetation, no shade, you know, no respite. That's what wilderness means. It's inhabit, not inhabitable, uninhabitable, sorry, uninhabitable. You can't survive there, basically. It's the opposite of a place of flourishing. And sometimes when we start out in this Christian walk, we think, all right, perhaps if I follow this Jesus guy, he will be the tour guide that will get me around the wilderness, right? He obviously wouldn't lead me straight into the wilderness. Like, why would he do that? Right. He obviously wouldn't leave you into the wilderness. He's going to leave you around like some kind of shortcut or jump over. And that's what we think the Christian walk is. But I hate, I hate to break this news to you, but sometimes God will be about anything but avoiding the wilderness. Sometimes God will lead you straight into it. And so for us to understand this, we can't let a season of wilderness go to waste. Because it's going to come sooner or later. If you've never experienced wilderness, good for you. It's going to come. It's going to come for you. So listen up, take notes. So today's uh, message uh, is, is titled Lessons in the Wilderness. And it's from Hosea chapter 2, verses 14 to 20. So if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you uh, to open it up. I'll still have slides up here, but it's always good to just have it in your hand. So Hosea, it's somewhere in the middle of the Old Testament. Um, This is chapter two. The whole book of Hosea is a very, very interesting book. It's an allegory of God's relationship with the people of Israel depicted as the love between a husband and a wife. And this is the sucky job of a prophet. It wasn't that he, Hosea was just called to talk about the story and tell the story and narrate the story and write it down. Actually, God asked him to live that out. He asked him to, as a prophet, a holy man of God, he asked him, go marry a prostitute, a harlot. Harlot is an Old Testament word for prostitute, in case you guys don't know. So um, harlot is not a nice word. It's like, oh, she was a harlot. No, she was a harlot. <laughs> no, okay, it's, a, it's, a, it's prostitute, okay? So this holy man of God, you know, I'm pretty sure he was already fantasizing about uh, my, my wife is going to be perfect. The Proverbs 31 woman, like she's going to be like, check all the boxes. But God asked this man to actually go and marry a prostitute. And in that process, he's showing him and showing us what it feels like for God to love a fallen people. Even before he marries her, he knows that she's going to betray him. He knows that that's right around the corner. And even so, God asked him, I want you to do this. I want you to feel the pain of betrayal. I want you to feel the pain and the sting of loss. And even when she doesn't deserve it, I want you to go after her once again and bring her back from her lovers and make her your wife once again. And that is a story not just of Israel, unfortunately, but also ours, isn't it? Sometimes it's easy for us to read the Bible and be like, man, these Israelites, man, they're so messed up, right? Man, God told them this and then they didn't do it. And then he showed this and then, but it's actually a story of us as well. It's really easy for us to point the finger at somebody else. But honestly, this is, this is the, the, it's, it's a illustration of human nature. 
All of us are adulterers in heart. All of us are sinners in heart. Everything in us, in the flesh, wants to veer away from worship of the true God and find replacements and substitutes for it. So in spiritual language, that's called idolatry. In the language of Hosea, in the, in the language of marriage, it's called adultery. It's the same thing, but it's referring to us turning away from our one true God, our one true husband, and finding replacements for it. So what does a God who is holy do about that? Like, what, what can you do? Can you force somebody to love you? Like, like how, how would you go about that? Have you ever thought about that? Like, if you had a mission and you're like, okay, I'm going to make Gal, like, love me. Like, I'm going to make her love me somehow. Okay, maybe not Gal. That's creepy. Don't do that. <laughs> um, so how can you make somebody fall in love with you? It's virtually impossible because it's a choice. And yet God shows us uh, that there is a process that he takes Israel through. And in the same way, he takes us through to bring us to that place where our God is our God once again. So in Hosea 2, we say in response, we see in response to her adultery, in response to her waywardness, her rebellion, her running away from her true husband. This is what happens. This is what God says. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer will you call me my Baal. Baal is the name of another deity, so an idol. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the creeping things on the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety and I will betroth you to me forever. I'll betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. Let's take a moment just to pray for the word. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you, God, that it will not come back to you empty, but everything that you've set out for it to do, it will accomplish. I pray, God, that you wouldn't give us the luxury of just taking in head knowledge, just information, and archiving this along with so many other things that we kind of know in our minds and yet don't experience in our lives. But I pray God that your word would be living and active that would do transforming work within us. It would challenge and confront our desires. It would challenge and confront our lifestyles. It would disrupt us from normal everyday ordinary lives and would lead us Lord God to something greater. I pray God that that would be the ministry of your Holy spirit at work in our lives. And I pray father that you would speak to us or God, not to our neighbor, not to somebody that we know that needs to listen to this message, but us. Would you open up our hearts? Amen. <clears throat> so let me start out with this question to you. What is the purpose of the wilderness season? What is the purpose of the wilderness season? Because everything that God does has a purpose. He doesn't just kill time. He doesn't just accidentally do things. He has a purpose for everything and especially every season that he takes us through. 
So the first thing, I'm just going to go through four today. This is in no way, you know, uh, a complete, you know, um, uh, list. But I'm just going to go through four different things that God does in the season of wilderness. The first thing that he does is exposing and purging of idols in our hearts. Because do you know that God is so committed to a bride that will not look at other lovers that he will intentionally, not accidentally, not by chance, intentionally orchestrate circumstances around her that will create the perfect environment for the idols of her heart to rise to the surface. He's going to orchestrate this. He's going to make sure that she's going to be found in a place where her idols that are very, maybe hidden somewhere deep within, they're going to rise up to the surface. So if we look at a passage in the Bible on Exodus 32, uh, don't look it up because we're going to be looking up a lot of them. So if we look at Exodus, Exodus chapter 32, verses one through six, we look at a picture of, of Israel, this newly delivered, newly brought out of Egypt nation. And they are like at the pinnacle of the promise. Like they've just shut down Pharaoh's you know, power. They've just shown 10 times over that Yahweh is so much greater than the Egyptian gods. They had this massive showdown for chapters and chapters. And now they're finally, they've been delivered out of Egypt and they find themselves at Mount Sinai. So this is where God shows himself in a manifest form. In a manifest form. It means like they could actually see with their eyes the mount. They're at the base of the mount. They see Moses kind of like climbing up. They see thunder, lightning. They see clouds. They hear trumpets and voices coming out. So it's not like this, like, oh, I think something spiritual is happening here. It's like very clear. God is there and he's meeting with his people. The problem was that the people were down at the base of Mount Sinai. And this one man, right? Moses went up to meet with the Lord and he takes a sweet time. It's not like, oh, I'll be back in 30 minutes. He took 40 days, 40 days. That's over a month, right? He took 40 days. So this is the perfect recipe for their idols to start coming out to the surface. When the promise is there, the excitement is there. Like, man, we just shut down Egypt. They are like the empire of the time. Like there is no other nation that compares to Egypt. And yet we shut them down. They paid us to get out of Egypt. Do you remember? Like they, they gave them silver and, and like, like spoils for them to leave. They paid us to get out. That's how powerful we are. Now it's our time. Like, man, things are about to get interesting. Things are about to go down. So they're super excited and they're waiting there. Okay. We're going to hear from this God and it's day one. Okay. We can wait a little bit more. Day two. Day three, day four, and slowly they start getting anxious. Like, okay, is, is anything going to happen? It's been 20 days. It's been 30 days. It's been 40 days. It's 40 days. And this is what the Bible says happens. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down for the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them. This is the priest, right? It's like the pastor. The pastor answered them instead of, what are you talking about? A golden, he said, you know what? That's a great idea. 
That's a great idea. This is what he answered. Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they had handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they, then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. They had the nerve. They're still at the base of the mountain. They're still hearing the thunder. They're here. They're seeing the lightning. They're seeing the clouds surrounding this mount. They have the nerve to make a golden calf and then say, that's not Yahweh. This is Yahweh. This is what delivered us out of Egypt. And then it says, when Aaron saw this, instead of shutting it down, he built an altar. My goodness. You had one job, right? <laughs> He built an altar in front of the calf and announced tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. That's a very polite way of saying like they had a massive party orgy. Basically, it was basically a pagan ritual celebrated unto a pagan God. And they actually called it Yahweh. They said that this is our Lord. This is Yahweh. This is the one who delivered us up out of Egypt. So it looks something like this, right? There's a, obviously this is not an exact depiction, but this is something like what it would look like. It's at the base of the mountain. Everybody's looking and they're seeing Yahweh on top of the mountain and Moses probably somewhere up in there and they're waiting and they can't wait any longer. And when they find themselves like, man, I guess maybe like all this stuff was leading up to nothing. Maybe, um, maybe we got to take matters into our own hands, right? Like I thought God was going to make us into uh, this amazing nation. He was going to make us the next best thing, the next Egypt. And yet like, he's not really doing anything. How about we give him a hand? How about we help him out a little bit because God seems to be having trouble making us the next Egypt. And so they decided to do that on their own. They decided to do that on their own. They wanted to be the next big thing. So it was in the moment of where did this anointed man of God go? Where are the promises? Where's everything going? It was in that moment that the real idol within their hearts emerged. So the golden calf, it wasn't actually created when they took off their earrings and they melted and they made into a calf. It was actually in their hearts all along. It was there all along when they came out of Egypt in their mind was like, we're the next best nation. We're going to, we're going to be worshiped in the same way that Egypt was worshiped. We're going to be feared in the same way that Egypt was feared. And now we're going to have a God that people can see in the same way that Egypt does. And so they had an idol already in their hearts. And it was only a matter of circumstance and time for that idol to emerge and show up in the form of a golden calf. That was just one of the ways in which the wilderness season is actually a very fruitful season. Unless you go through the wilderness, you actually don't know what's underneath your heart. Has it ever happened to you where you're, you think you're doing great and then God does something to disrupt your life and you realize, oh my gosh, I have, I have fear when it comes to the area of finances. You don't know that until your finances are out of order or, or you feel like you're in a pinch. That's when you realize like, oh my gosh, I'm so anxious. I can't go to sleep. I'm having nightmares. That's when the idol of money there, it's just come up to the surface. It was always there, but the right circumstances just had to show up for you to 
see it on the surface. It can happen with anything. It can be fear of man. It can be fear of abandonment. It can be anything. But if that is there, a season of wilderness will actually bring it up to the surface, not to condemn you, not to shame you, but actually to purge it, to get rid of it, to deal with it once and for all. Now, the second thing that happens in the season of wilderness is intimacy and trust building with God. Intimacy and trust building with God. So often we think that the place where God is going to meet us is up in the mountaintop. When our prayers are answered, when things are overflowing, the Saturday night of the retreat or, or the promotion or the highlight reel, when things are going really great, I feel like, man, I'm so close to God. Like, man, I feel his presence in my life. I see his hand in my life. But the reality is that most often it is in the moments where we feel most lonely, most overwhelmed, most overlooked at the end of a rope, most desperate for rescue, that we finally understand what it means to be satisfied in God and in God alone. When we have other things that satisfy us, it's very hard to see that. It's almost like God needs to strip everything else away until it's just you and him. And that's the place where you learn, oh my gosh, all I need is God. I thought I needed all these other things. But when it comes down to it, all I do need all I can't afford to lose is God. That's when we finally understand what it means to be truly satisfied in God. When we have nothing else to lean on, no other crutch, no other distraction, nothing taking away our attention when it's just you and God. So Genesis 12, it talks about someone who was sent out into the wilderness and her name was Hagar. She was a slave woman whose life was actually owned because she was a slave. She was owned by Abraham and by Sarah. And when conflict arose between Hagar and Sarah, Hagar was actually sent out into the desert with her infant son, Ishmael, who was a little boy at that time, not infant, infant boy, boy. He was a boy. Um, so she was sent out into the wilderness, into the desert. And this is what Genesis 12 says. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba, when the water and the skin, so the water skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down nearby about a bow shot away for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there nearby, she began to sob. God heard the boy crying and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what is the matter? Hagar, do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. You have to picture this. This is a slave woman who was rejected by her owners. She was asked to go into the desert with her son. The only thing that she was given was a skin of water. The only thing she was given was a skin of water. The only, way, the only reason why this is important is because one skin of water won't make it very long. It will make it just long enough for you to be deep enough in the desert for nobody to, to be able to see you die. She was sent out to die, but they made sure you better be way in the desert. Nobody wants to see you die. You're going to be alone. You're just going to be with your son. Nobody's eyes, nobody's ears are going to witness this tragic moment. She was given enough water 
to go far enough into the wilderness that when it would run out, no one would be able to see them die. No one would hear the boy's cries. No one would witness their pain and their slow death. But it was precisely there that she learned that there was someone greater than Sarah, someone greater than Abraham that had her life in her hands. All along, she thought, my life is in the hands of my slave owners. She didn't know that her hands were actually in the, in the hands of the Lord. And it was there in the middle of the desert when she was about to die and she was, she was about to see her son die. And then she was about to die herself. It was there that she realized that even if no one hears my cries, God does. She thought that life and death was in the hands of Abram, her master, but it wasn't until she was out in the wilderness that she learned that life and death, her future and her destiny and the life of her son, it was all in the Lord's hands. She wasn't alone. Maybe she didn't know this until she was out in the wilderness. But the fact that God chose to hear the cries of a slave woman, somebody who wouldn't even be missed. If she disappeared from one day to the next, no one would even remember. Well, who's Hagar? Who's Ishmael? Oh, yeah, where did they go? It would be kind of like that. No one would know any better. And yet God met them in the middle of the wilderness when no one else, when no one else would go out to them. God was the one who did. It is often in the wilderness that we learn this quote. You may never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And I hate to wish this upon you, but I hope all of us go through at least one time in our lives when we're faced with this. We realize, okay, everything else has been stripped away. All the things that I was, you know, putting my worth on, all the plans, all the purposes, everything that I planned on, all the things that I thought were secure and unchanging in my life, all those things are gone. What do I have left? And I hope that in that moment, you realize that God is there and that God is enough. So I don't know what kind of situations you might have been already through. You might have maybe lost a loved one or you might have faced rejection from your family. You might have gone through losing a community that you love. You might have found yourself lonely or dealt with moving away on your own or experienced bitterness from different things that have happened in your life. You might have experienced failure, either yourself have experienced failure or maybe somebody has failed you. I don't know, but I do know that hidden there in the middle of the situation is a call and an invitation for you to lean on God. If ever there's been a time where you've been given no choice but to call upon him, that is that opportunity. When everything else has been stripped from you, it is there that is that opportunity to draw close to God. To get to that point where you've reached the end, and you say, I have no one else that I can trust but God. It is there where God does it. It is not on the mountaintop. It is not when things are going right. Sometimes it's when you've hit rock bottom. When you've hit rock bottom, that is an invitation for you to lean on the Lord. And we move on to the third thing. What is the third purpose of the wilderness season? It is preparation and sanctification. So we look in the word in second Corinthians chapter four, we're looking at a church that is not continuing to advance and is spreading the gospel. And yet they're meeting, uh, they're encountering more resistance than ever before. And it's a very real expectation to actually be, per- be persecuted. Like 
imagine we met in church every week and we were like, Hey, Casey, I know that this upcoming week you're going to face persecution. So good luck with that. I'll see you next week. Right. It's like, it's like that real. It's like just as sure as like, Hey, you're going to have, go have dinner. Right. It's like that same expectation. Hey, you're going to face persecution. That's how real the situation is. And it's in the context of persecution and hardships that God reveals that although your pain is real and the sting of bitterness is real, it is the only way to forge and use something that cannot come about in any other way. So second Corinthians four, it says this, therefore we do not lose heart though. Outwardly we are wasting away. That's a poetic way of saying dying, right? Dying. You are dying, right? We're outwardly wasting away yet inwardly something very different is happening on the inside. Inwardly, we're being renewed day by day for a light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. There's something that God is doing in the midst of all of the things that you think are out of your control. It is precisely there that God is doing something eternal deep within. And if we were to see it with clarity, if we were to actually know what that is, all the things as hard as they are, all the things that we experience here on earth, they would be like, what is that? That's nothing. That's nothing. And we're not talking about like an inconvenience. We're talking about persecution, the fear of death, like your, your family being arrested and tortured. Like that's what we're talking about. And even that is nothing but a light and momentary affliction. That's nothing. They torture you. It's going to be for what? 20 years tops. And then you have eternity. Something inside of you is happening and that's going to last for eternity. 20 years is nothing. 20 years is nothing. It's just light and momentary. I've never experienced something that hard, but I know if I ever get to that, I don't think I'm not going to think it's light and momentary. I'm going to be like, Jesus, take me now. (laughs) Shortened my life and just take me now. And yet God is saying there's something that is happening there in that moment when it hurts the most, even when you don't see it in the natural, something is happening inside of you. A preparation, a sanctification, a Christ-likeness that is growing within you that often can't come about unless you go through wilderness season. I don't know if you've ever uh, met people uh, in your life that like, like you meet with them and they can say the same things that other people are saying and yet you feel like something about them is a little different. Like you're like, uh, you know, if someone says like, oh, I'm, I'm so joyful in the house of the Lord, they'll say that and then this other person says, I'm so joyful in the house of the Lord. And something about the way that they say it makes you think like there's a story behind that. Like something that they've walked through has done something within them. And now when they say, I'm so joyful in the house of the Lord, it means something very weighty. It has come at a great cost. Often it's because they've gone through a wilderness season. It's not because their lives have been great. And that's why they can say, I'm so joyful in the house of the Lord. Often it's because they've been through so many hardships in their lives. And if yet they can say, I'm so joyful in the house of the Lord, joy to them means something completely different. It's not a light thing. It's not a cheap thing. It's something that is costly. And yet something that has carried them through probably the hardest times of their lives. 
And that's not just somebody else. It might just be you as well. Perhaps even in your trials and the hardest things that God is making you face in your life, perhaps that's what God is doing in you. He's writing a story behind the joy that you will experience. He's writing a story behind the weight of your worship. And when you lift your hands in worship and when you exalt Jesus for his beauty, it means something completely different. It's not like, oh, Jesus, you're beautiful. It's like, Jesus, you're beautiful. You are enough. Like I, you are life. You are everything to me. And it's because I've experienced your sufficiency, your provision, your grace, your mercy, your compassion, all those things because I've gone through a wilderness season. And that's something that God creates in us through a wilderness season. Now, lastly, what is the purpose of the wilderness season? It is preaching the sufficiency of Christ in times of quote unquote lack. And I put lack between quotation marks because when you say, oh, I am lacking, it actually you're saying an incomplete sentence, right? You're lacking something. It's a lack of something, right? Does that make sense? So it can, it can be lack of finances. It can be lack of meaningful relations. It can be lack of fulfilled promises or prayer answers or whatever, but maybe what you're measuring is the wrong thing. Does that make sense? Like you're going by particular metrics that would make you say there's a lack, but perhaps that's not always the case. So preaching the sufficiency of Christ in times of lack, we're going to go to Matthew five. It's a very well-known passage of the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are the ones, blessed are the ones. Another word, another way to translate blessed is happy. Happy are the ones, happy are the ones. Um, and at the tail end of that, you're like, okay, that's very interesting. Happies and blesseds. Very interesting. The last blessed are X, Y, and Z is actually about persecution. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And often at this point, at the end of this, in our minds, we put up kind of like, all right, next story. And then we go on to, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, etc. We don't know that it's actually connected. Being blessed in this life, according to the kingdom of God, is being able to bear persecution. And that is how, that is how, it has everything to do with how you become salt on the earth. It has everything to do with how you are a light of the world. They're part of the same discourse. The blessed are the ones who blah, blah, blah. And you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. They're part of the same discourse. And you cannot understand this part unless you first accept the precepts of the blessing that comes from persecution and hardship. So this beatitude in particular leaves no room for squirming around. He's very plain and very open in saying that you have reason to rejoice and to be glad. And there's a great reward in heaven because you're persecuted and because you're going to bear hardships for my name's sake. And then he says, you're going to be salt on the earth. You're going to be a light of the world. 
people are going to look at you and there's going to be something very different about you. There's going to be something very different about you. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven. Something about the way that you walk through the hardest situations and greatest injustices in your life will shine a light. Something as undeniable and conspicuous and noticeable and unavoidable as a city on a hill. Something that will bring glory to the Father in heaven. And although this isn't an intentional or uh, it's not a direct intention, it is an inevitable result. Like it or not, the world is watching the church. And often they don't see anything different about the church than the world. They're happy when things are good. They're sad when things are bad. What's new, right? And that is often the testimony of the church. Like it or not, the world is watching. Whether we believe in a message and in a God that is worthy of sacrifice and hardship and inconvenience and even persecution and death. People are wanting to see not only if God is worthy of worship just when things are good, but whether he's worthy of trust, even when things are hard. And maybe my question to you today is what does your life preach? Is that what it preaches? Or does it preach God is good when times are good? God is terrible when times are terrible. And that is my gospel. That is what I live out. So the world is watching and your life is preaching a message. And it's displaying, it is reflecting the God that you serve. And perhaps it is in times of trials and hardships and wilderness and dryness that you are given an opportunity to preach and display a God that is worthy of worship, a Christ that is more than enough for his grace, his his companionship, his provision is more than enough. So once again, this is not a comprehensive list in any way. It's a short list on what kind of fruit your season in the wilderness can bear, if only you let it. So this is my challenge to us. Let God mercifully expose the idols of your heart and break off that stronghold from you. It is better that God break you than he let you continue to worship those idols unknowingly. Let God draw you close and lead you to that place where you finally realize that he's all you need. More than success, more than significance, more than the perfect life, more than your 10-year plan. He's more than you need. Let God prepare you and make you more like him. In every step, make you more and more like Christ. And finally, let your life and your worship preach to dark and to dying world that Christ is more than enough. So I'm not saying that it's easy and all this will come supernaturally. No, come super space naturally, but I'm saying that it will happen and it's inevitable. And if you begin to feel like this is unfair and how come you have to live through this and why aren't things easier and how come other people don't seem to go through all this? We need to take comfort in the fact that the God that you worship is also the God that took suffering upon himself on your behalf. And if there was ever anyone who was blameless and perfect 
and should have been exempt for pain, it was Jesus. So before he started his public ministry of signs and wonders and all these amazing things that were happening, casting out demons, multiplying bread, all these things, at the inauguration of his public ministry, he was baptized. And this is this glorious inauguration, right? And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And so at this point, the plot is escalating and you think, man, it's about to get really exciting, right? But then we see the very next line and it says that immediately Jesus was led up, not by the devil, by the spirit into the wilderness, not away from, into, straight into the wilderness. Not only that, to be tempted for this one purpose, to be tempted by the devil. By the spirit into the wilderness for the purpose of being tempted by the devil. And the devil, after 40 days of this, he begins to propose a different game plan to Jesus. He says, you can do your cross thing. You can do your death thing, your betrayal thing where everybody leaves you. You can do that. Or you do things a little bit differently. And he proposes three different things. If you're the son of God, you know, he just heard you are my beloved son, right? So this is being tested. If you're the son of God, prove it, right? Command these stones to become loaves of bread. So basically give the crowds what they want. Give the crowds what they want. So easy. You convert all these things to bread. Crowds will come. Crowds will flood in. Give them what they want. It's an easy way. You don't need to do the cross. Why? Why go through the cross? Why go through the agony? Why the suffering? Why the betrayal? Just give them what they need. They're going to worship you. It's going to be different worship. They're going to worship you. Give them what they want. Second, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. He will command his angels concerning. Can you imagine? He was at the top of a temple at this point. Can you imagine? You see a figure like on top of a building. You're like, who's that? And then you see him jump off. And right as he's about to land, you're like, kind of like levitates and gently lands on the ground and you see angels around. Can you imagine? Basically the devil is saying like flex your spiritual muscles, show your power to the full extent, show them your power. So easy. You do that one stunt crowds will come. You'll have the worship of all the nations as easy as that. And last one, here's the devil was, you know, very persistent. And this was his last temptation. He said, there's a shortcut. You don't need to do all the suffering thing that that, that the father is proposing. How about you just worship me and I'll just give all these things to you. Really easy. Really easy. I'll just give them all to you. All these kingdoms can be yours if you just worship me. That's a small price to pay considering what the father is asking you to do. And it was in this wilderness that Jesus drew a line in the sand and defined the kind of king that he would be to his people. He was not the one who would avoid pain and embrace comfort and fame. He would not be one who would get a lot of followers 
and fans and multitudes because of all the stunts that he was able to pull. But he would be one who a few years later would embrace the cross in all its pain and all its ugliness so that you and I would live. And if this is truly our God, then we're called to do the same. If we're called to be Christ-like, this is part of what it means to be like Christ. Picking up our cross and following him. So if we go back to our main passage, let me ask you a question. Regardless of what your witness looks like, uh, sorry, what your wilderness looks like and how long it is for, what is God doing in the midst of it? Can you hear his voice? Can you feel his intent? Can you feel his closeness? Can you experience his sufficiency in a fresh new way? Can you testify of a love, a faithfulness, a goodness that is better than life, better than the comforts, better than having things your way, better than having mountaintop experiences all the time? Can you testify of a love that's greater than that? And so as a response to Israel's idolatry of heart, God had said, therefore, behold, instead of just giving her up to her idols, her bales, just letting her go her own way, he said, I will allure her, bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Acre a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things on the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. After all that, I'll betroth you to me forever. I'll betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I'll betroth you to me in faithfulness through the wilderness. And you shall know the Lord. So let me end with this. This is the hope, especially when it gets hard. There are many prophecies in scripture all over the Old Testament and the New Testament that speak of a day when we'll see the result of all the testing and all the refining and the pain and the suffering. And the result is going to be a pure and spotless bride ready to meet her returning bridegroom. That's where it's all leading. This isn't a bride that has had an easy life, but one that has been led into the greatest wilderness season that human history will ever experience. And that is called the the end times, the great tribulation. And then song of songs paints a picture of a witnessing world looking up and seeing this bride emerging from the wilderness, completely transformed to the point where she's barely recognizable. Like, I don't know who you are. Like, who are you again? Like it's, it, it causes almost confusion and the witnesses that look at this bride coming out of the wilderness. This is what they say. Who is this coming up from the wilderness leaning on her beloved? There's going to be a leaning that comes, but it comes only through a season of wilderness. And if God can do it then in the midst of the greatest tribulation, the greatest trials and testing and persecution, then he can do it now as well. He's committed to make you lean on him. And in our own 
limited human understanding. Sometimes we can't understand the why behind the pain that we experience on this side of eternity. But the wilderness is temporary. The glory is eternal. And one day we'll understand fully the why. And perhaps we'll even understand the worth behind it. Until then, we need to let him do his work. We need to trust him in where he's leading and in what he's doing. And we need to follow him as he leads us, even if it means going into the wilderness. Let's pray.